Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, in our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did. And we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. We make it look easy. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to discuss topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, after season one, I'm pretty sure we already have. (laughs) So welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody's Apparently, many of you and your children are probably in some pretty good company. Okay, what company? Check out this list. Gandhi, Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Emma Watson, Mm -hmm. Albert Einstein, J.K. Rowling, and I'll go one more, Beyonce. That's a pretty good list. Yeah, I'd like to be in common with them. <laughs> yeah. uh, they all share something in common that you might not know. They are self-described introverts. Okay. I know this may sound shocking because these folks like went on to have very big careers in uh, business, history, uh, science, sports, entertainment fields, but um, they were all self-described introverts. Well, so it's estimated that 25 to 40 percent of the population is introverted. And a quick Google search uh, for a definition comes up with a wide range of explanations. Yes, there were a lot. Um, yeah, uh, but it came from Carl Jung the psychologist who coined the term introvert and extrovert. Introverts are people who tend to be inward turning or focused more on internal thoughts, internal feelings and moods, rather than seeking out external stimulation. So I was recently talking to a girlfriend about kids and growing up um, in today's society with the nonstop uh, personal sharing on social media and so on. And we started talking about how kind of our culture tends to celebrate or hear more about extroverts. Yep. And, you know, the charismatic kid, the loudest, most talkative kid are often the most popular. They're the social butterflies. And um, it just seems like that's what you hear about all the time. So my friend and I were talking and she ended up giving me this book called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which I love that That's a great title. title. It's a great title. And this author, Susan Keen, went on to write a companion book for kids called Quiet Power, The Secret Strengths of Introverts. So I took the kid book and I started reading it because it's interesting when I watch my my kids' friends and hanging out and stuff. Like you kind of get a feel after seven or eight years of knowing them, like what kind of people they are growing into and so on. So I finished the kid book and I found it really interesting because for so long extroverts have kind of been the gold standard. Like mm-hmm. everyone aspires to be that. And this book literally flipped it around and was a celebration of introverts. And I was like... Yeah. yeah. Hot damn. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's some really great leaders in the world, and they were all quiet and introverted personalities, but they went on to do great big things. So, you know what? You don't have to be like this big loudmouth or like the most talkative person in class to contribute anything big. You know, I read one example that Hillary 
Clinton is an introvert and Bill is an extrovert, and that is why they work well together. Oh, yin and yang. Yeah. So, um, but we do. We elect the extroverts. We choose the the people who are loudest or who who maybe who just draw the most attention. So, so I was um, looking into more about Susan Cain, the author of those two books, and there was this really quick um, YouTube video that she posted about it, and I thought we should share it just because it might uh, be a good introduction to what we're going to talk about. If you take a group of people and put them into a meeting and have them talk about something, the opinions of the loudest person or the most charismatic person or the most assertive person, those are the ones that the group tends to follow. And yet, researchers have looked at this, there's no correlation between being that best talker and having the best ideas. I mean, like, zero correlation. I think that we're living in a society now that is so overly extroverted. As we shifted from an agricultural economy to a corporate one, we started to admire people who could be magnetic and charismatic, because these were the qualities that seemed to matter for job interviews and things like that. And so in the earlier agricultural economy, our self-help books used to have titles like character, the grandest thing in the world. But then the self-help books later on became the ones that we kind of know of today, like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And those were all about teaching us to be more entertaining, more dynamic, and that kind of thing. You know, I, I think for any trait of human nature, any aspect, it has its pros and it has its cons. And what I'm saying is that for too long we've looked at introversion only through its disadvantages, and we've looked at extroversion only through its advantages. So I'm trying to now fill in the gaps and what that can sometimes sound like is, you know, down with extroverts, up with introverts. And my vision of the right world is, is a world where it's yin and yang, you know, and there's space for extroverts and there's space for introverts and it's equal space. If you look at the birth of Apple, the Apple computer, we, we tend to associate Apple with Steve Jobs, who is this dazzling showman. But really, the person who invented the Apple computer was a different Steve. It, it was Steve Wozniak, who's a self-identified introvert. And he created this amazing thing by sitting by himself in a cubicle at Hewlett-Packard, where he was working at the time, um, late at night and early in the morning before anybody was at work. He would work by himself, by himself, by himself for months, and then he produced this amazing thing that he then shared with his friend Steve Jobs. And then it was Steve Jobs who said, hey, we should start a company with this. This is amazing. Without Steve Jobs, none of it ever would have come to pass. Um, so it was this combination of letting you know, the, the solitary person go off by himself to, to think in his deep way and then having a partnership between the two. And in fact, you know, in companies, it's been found that the most effective teams are the ones that are a combination of introvert and extrovert. And the two types are really drawn to each other and, and really need each other. So... I think that was a good explanation. Yeah. The, the Apple computer thing, I actually didn't know that. Um, I think I think you're an extrovert. All right. So I would, I would guess that, too. I took the test, though. Um, there's an online test uh, through this quiet revolution. And um, it turns out I'm an ambivert. Have you heard of that one? Uh, I have. It's a little of both. Yes. Okay. So, you know, I do... I do uh, love crowds and I love social situations, but then I I do uh, come come home and need to recharge, like recharge your batteries, yeah. literally, and like alone time. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that I'm an extrovert, but in talking with the same girlfriend who was telling me about the book, and we were talking about this 
this over the phone. Uh, she's like, you know, Trace, you weren't always like that. Like you were kind of quieter and um, more introverted years ago. So like you grew into this. And um, I definitely think my husband is an extrovert. Yes. <laughs> I don't think there's any disputing that. Right. Um, but. I, I think that I have one of each at home. My my kids are one of each. My husband's an introvert, but he does sales, so he has to sort of put, yeah. put on a mask, right? Um, but so Sophie is interesting because she was. Both of my girls are performers, but um, and Sophie thrives on stage. But um, she used to be. Do you remember? She used to be totally unwilling to interact. Um, I took her to a psychologist. Uh, they they called her slow to warm. I had to bring her to places ahead of time to let her see uh-huh. what was going on. Uh-huh. She, she couldn't just go to a birthday party. She yeah. had to go and watch and then dip join your toe in. in the water and then yeah. Yep. Um, and 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 she's changed drastically. So isn't it funny the kids that are like kind of quieter than also do actually like to perform? Like I was like, how can you be on stage in front of? hundreds of people and perform but then you're kind of shyer like quieter it doesn't it's at odds with itself at least in my mind it is so there's this thing called the quiet revolution which you just mentioned a minute ago it's an organization that susan kane the author that i was reading about and watched her video um she started this group. The vision of the Quiet Revolution is to create a world where introverts are celebrated for their powerful contributions and more importantly for who they are mm-hmm. and where everyone's quiet strength, no matter what their person personality type, is validated. So to talk about introverts in our families, because let's face it, a third of the population is introverted. So mm-hmm. that means that someone you know and love is an introvert. We called Priscilla Gilman a contributor for the Quiet Revolution. She's written several books notably The Anti-Romantic Child, and she's written pieces for The New York Times, Oprah, Huffington Post Parents, Red Book, Real Simple. That's just to name a few. She's written a bunch. Hi, Priscilla. Hi, you guys. I'm really (laughs) excited to be here with you. So tell us a little bit about your connection to The Quiet Revolution and maybe a little more about the organization. So I was introduced to Susan Cain on Facebook. Our books, our first books came out around the same time, and someone who had read both of our books thought that we were sort of kindred spirits. Um, my book is about my son who is autistic and it's very much, about, it's called the anti-romantic child, the story of unexpected joy. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle is very important because it's about how none of us gets the child that we expect to get. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's about reconciling your expectations or your fantasies or your desires and your wishes for what it's going to be like to be a parent with the reality of your child. Um, and often your child is going to be very different from that. And Susan's book is also about that, about how there are normative expectations for how children and people should behave, that there's a privileged way of thinking about the way children should interact in school, um, socially. Uh, and both of us, I think at, at heart, our work is about helping parents and the, and the kids themselves, right? Because I love Susan's book for kids. Um, I heard you talking about that, and I agree. It's wonderful. Um, help make space for more varieties of people, different kinds of temperaments, helping schools to make space beyond that extrovert ideal that Susan talks about. And uh, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times that Susan um, put me in touch with her editor about the Newtown shootings because there was a lot of stigmatizing of autism going around in the media. And I quoted Susan's book in that op-ed because it's both of us want teachers, parents, companies, 
right, to take each individual on his or her own terms and try to look at strengths rather than perceived weaknesses. I think that's an absolutely crucial aspect of the Quiet Revolution. I then came on board as the parenting and education columnist for the Quiet Revolution. I wrote a bunch of columns for them. Uh, People would send in their questions, and I would answer them, and then I became a speaker, so I've done a lot of speaking. There's something called the Quiet Schools Institute, uh, and I spoke at their first conference in New York City to educators about how to make schools more hospitable to introverts and how to look at themselves and see there is this extrovert ideal in terms of the assignments that we give, in terms of the evaluations that we have, and we really need to reform that evaluation system so that it makes room so that everybody can shine and everybody can bring their unique strengths to the table. The other thing to say about this is that I'm a former college professor. I was an English professor at Yale and at Vassar. I am an extrovert. I am probably as far over on the extrovert spectrum as you can get. I was a kid who talked a lot in class. Um, I'm also a public speaker, right? I used to be a performer. Um, But it's always been very important to me to make space for those quiet kids in my classroom. And I sort of intuitively was doing it all along the way. And then when I read Susan's book, I was like, yes, this is so, so important that we not have this rigid idea of what it means to participate, right? That, that dreaded participation grade for introverts. All right, participation, right? That is um, the participation grade. It's so subjective, first of all. But what, what if you have a kid who's labeled quiet? Um, what if people are always saying, come out of your shell? Um, the, I've heard that. Yeah. Does, does that create more anxiety for the child? I actually think quiet is an okay label. I mean, that's what our whole quiet revolution is about, right? I don't think quiet is a negative label. Um, you know, I think um, shy is more of a problem. I think it, it becomes a problem when participation is defined as how often you speak in class. Right. Exactly. And and it's so just, often it's a it's a it's a part of your grade, your class participation. Like Susan's book was talking about like classrooms where there was like a popsicle stick and you had three popsicle sticks. And by the end of class, you had to have contributed three times and you had to put your popsicle stick in at that. Like and so then it's it's like, really, are you really adding value to the conversation? Or are you just open and flapping your lips and <laughs> throwing a, a popsicle in like as opposed to just maybe somebody contributing? one time but have it be really thought-provoking or like critical thinking and and only one time to say something i absolutely agree with you it should be about quality not quantity and i actually when i was a professor didn't even require students to speak at all uh, in the beginning the ones that were uh, had more trouble speaking to the group i slowly coaxed them and supported them and scaffolded for them by having them first come to speak to me one-to-one in my office hours, right? Getting comfortable with me first as an individual. Baby steps. Then baby steps and finding out from them what was particularly challenging for them. So maybe it was speaking extemporaneously. Maybe they needed to come to class with some notes, right, that they could have in front of them and they could look down and refer to those notes while they were speaking, or maybe they respond better to being asked a question and getting to answer it so that there's something more specific. Like black and white? Yeah, that they don't just have to throw their voice into the room to have it be heard. 
and I would often reassure these students, and I would, I would actually, in the beginning of the semester, and I think this is a really good thing for teachers to do, define participation as depth of engagement rather than the amount of time that you're opening your mouth and talking. Because we as teachers don't want, like, that kid who's constantly talking can be just as much or if not much more of a problem, right? right. Where they're, and they can also further inhibit the quiet students. Because the quiet students look at those kids who are yapping constantly, and some of them haven't even done the reading. Like, I could tell that. They were just like, oh, you know, this reminds me of this and this, and they would just go on and on and on. And that's not actually helpful. Right. No. So I think, you know, and I'm speaking about it in a college classroom, but let's talk about younger kids. Both of my children are introverts. My younger son very profoundly introverted. And the way that I helped the teachers kind of, because I think it really is about parent-school collaboration at a younger age. The parent, I think this is very beneficial, if the parent comes to the meeting and kind of contextualizes a child for the teacher and helps the teacher to see it's not that the child is bored or because they can get labeled. See, that's what they get labeled as. If they're quiet, they get labeled as bored, unengaged, lazy, right, um, daydreaming, all these things, and helping the teacher to see that just because the child is not speaking uh, a lot or at all, uh, the child may be profoundly engaged to share with the teacher what the child has told you at home about the class so that the teacher feels validated. Oh, this actually is thinking in the child is interested in this. Right. And then helping the teacher to understand what lights that child up. What is that child's passion? Because I found that that's a very useful way of making it more comfortable for the child to participate. Sure. Right? You're luring so like, them in. You're, you're getting them involved by speaking their language. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, like, if the child is somebody who's really interested in sports or really interested in my son was very, very interested in martial arts um, or my older son read very early, they, the teachers, after I explained this to them, would ask my son to read to the group of kids. And that wasn't threatening to him because he had a script. He had the book in front of him. So right. he was getting his voice out there. And then the other kids were like, wow, this is so cool. He can read. You know, and they would come up to him. And that was a way of connecting him with the other kids in a way that didn't feel threatening to him. Sure. And, you know, I heard you guys talking about performing. My younger son is an actor. He's a musical theater guy. And theater is how he found that's his niche. And it, it relates to what I just said, because there's a script, you see. Because there's ah. direction. Oh, because yeah. they know, okay, well, I have these words, and I know what to say. I don't have to speak improvisationally. It really is so often about, I don't know where to begin, these quiet kids will tell me. I don't know where to start. And, like, even the sound of my own voice, it scares me. But when they've been in a show, and they've been working with a group of kids, and it's for a common goal, and they have a script, and they have a director telling them, you stand here, you do this, Right it eventually, they can really, really come out of that proverbial shell mm -hmm. um, and and bloom and blossom. And then that confidence really can translate into other areas of their life. So you earlier just mentioned about um, shy versus introverted and that shy is the bad word. What's the difference between shy and introverted? I mean, that's, you know, that's something that's up for debate. Everybody says different things. Okay. I mean, I would say that that shyness is more... From Susan's perspective, because you, you guys, I heard you guys saying there's like millions of definitions on the Internet. Let's let's stick with what Susan says. OK, um, 
you know, an extrovert could be shy. You could get a lot of energy and excitement and um, have a lot of fun interacting with people, but you could be slow to warm up. That's me. Shyness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shyness is more slow to warm up. I'm not at all slow to warm up. I walk the room and I'm talking to everybody and, and hugging people and like I'm a hugger and I'm a Bill Clinton. I'm a Bill Clinton. <laughs> I heard you guys saying that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but you can be shy and once you know some shyness, I, I think more refers to how you initially present, right? Like when you meet someone, it, it, it takes you a while, but then once you know somebody, you can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Introversion, and I do have a strong inner introvert um, I heard you talking about how you like to go to the Alps, but then you need to recharge. Yeah. Um, I need to recharge, too. Okay. Um, I definitely do. I, I can, I, I'm, I'm great while I'm out there, but then when I get home, I'm like, oh, I need to listen to some quiet music and meditate. I, I just turn I turn on really bad TV and just kind of zone, zone out. out. Yeah. Oh, I do, too. I do, too. I, I love that. I love quote unquote bad TV. Yeah. Let's yeah. be honest here. Right. 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 To us, it's good. <laughs> yeah. So how how would you you kind of already touched on it a little bit about getting your kid to speak up in class because it is such a big deal um, in some classrooms. They're still looking at it the old school way. Um, how can we help encourage our kids if they're not getting a teacher that draws them out. And also, let me do a side note, too, um, Priscilla. At the beginning of the school year this year, my fifth grader's teacher asked every parent to write a letter about what what worked for his or her kid. Oh, yeah, I did that. Oh. Yeah. We, we all had to write a letter about how, you know, the strengths, the weaknesses, the hopes, the aspirations. It was, first of all, it was mind-boggling because I, I sat down and I really thought about my kid and what yeah. how to advocate for her. And then I was so glad this teacher had that information. So I thought... Yeah, normally they don't do that. Well, right. And so and you don't want to be the parent who like sends the letter without being asked, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was that parent. <laughs> but I had to be because I had two special needs kids because my older son's autistic, my younger son is dyslexic and right. has all sorts of stuff. So I was that parent. Um, that is just so fabulous that that teacher asked you to do that. I mean, that just shows so much openness and flexibility and desire to learn. And I think that, you know, gently teaching the teachers is what we, and learning from the teachers, it really has to be a mutual relationship. Um, A partnership. Yeah. I do a lot of speaking about uh, parent school collaboration, but in terms of helping your child, if you have a rigid, right, uh, teacher who's, um, going by the old extrovert ideal, um, I think the three best things to do, number one, definitely have them prepare in advance uh, and come to class with some kind of notes mm-hmm. so that they can look down, uh, refer to what they want to say, think about it in advance, really plan their comment in advance. I think that's absolutely crucial. Number two would be practicing with you mm-hmm. or um, a therapist or a friend, right? Having you model um, the situation in advance and having you ask the question or say, okay, do you have anything to say? And then letting your child practice what it's like to speak in that kind of scenario. You might even practice with your child asking them spontaneous questions that they wouldn't know in advance how to answer and yeah. sort of helping them see what it's like to kind of fumble around. Role play. Giving them strategy. Exactly. It's role playing. And it's something called like social stories. Um, This comes out of um, the autism community, but preparing in advance by writing a little scenario or acting it out in advance so that when you get there, because I think 
one of the things that scares introverts um, introverted kids in particular is being put on the spot. Right? Isn't that the and worst? Ha- Your face gets hot and red when they're like, Tracy, yes. blah, blah, blah. And, I'm, and everybody turns their head and looks at you in the classroom and you're like, oh, oh my it's God. Horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's practicing for that scenario of like feeling embarrassed and understanding that it's okay to feel embarrassed. And, you know, another thing that is related to shyness, introversion, Social anxiety, okay, social anxiety, which my younger son has. And one of the major ways that his therapist worked with him on this was it's called exposure therapy, like exposing him in scenario to scenarios where he might make a mistake or he might get something wrong the first time. And living through that experience and realizing that it's not the end of the world, right? right? Helping the child avoid that catastrophic thinking, like if I stumble or daughter or give the wrong answer um, my world it's over give the wrong answer you're not your world is not over exactly right. like practicing making mistakes and practicing um another and the third thing i was going to say is giving them strategies for buying time oh. like um you know if the teacher says uh and this is something that, that you know we see in pageants all the time yep. or you know political debates like where, where the teacher will ask a question and oh my gosh i'm not sure what to say so i say wow that's a really thought-provoking question. Yes. Like, repeat it, or, or that's a very interesting question. And, and also becoming comfortable saying, and I'm not sure how to answer it, but I'm going to give it a try. Okay. Right? Like, being comfortable with your vulnerability in that moment. I used to teach broadcast journalism, and we would advise the kids during, like, live shots if someone threw a question that was not okay. First of all, say the name of the anchor. You know, say, John... <laughs> You know, and, and, and that gives you a second and then say, yeah, I don't know exactly what kind of, you know, shoes, but, but I do know this. And so you, so and yes. it's very political. Yes. Nice. Yeah. So you shift it. Oh, and you still yes. contribute. Yeah. That is excellent. And that ties into what we were saying before about really going with passions and areas of interest and areas of strength. Right. I think that's wonderful. What about when you, and we're talking about little kids here. Um, when you get to the big birthday party or the oh, fantasy kingdom yeah. or the whatever, and you know, and <laughs> I remember that yes, place. <laughs> um, and your kid does not want to enter in or, oh, um, yeah. I remember a birthday party where one of our friends couldn't come inside. It was too noisy. And, um, oh, yeah. and she didn't like, she needed to be outside to, to, you know, acclimate. So what, what do you suggest for parents who have the kid who doesn't want to go in? Oh, I had that kid, okay. my younger son. Okay. We were we were like, as we would approach the door of the party and we could start to hear the noise, he would start to shake. Mm-hmm. And I spent an entire birthday party with him. He sat under a table. Right. <laughs> he was so freaked out. Um, I think the first thing is, and I know as parents, it's so hard and it's so, it can be so frustrating and, and you worry that people are judging your child or thinking that your child is not having a good time, right? And that your child is not um, being a good friend because they're not participating in the party. I think the first thing is to just throw all those kinds of thoughts out the window and mm-hmm. just say, this is who my child is right now. And this is what my child needs. And I am not going to shame him or humiliate him or make him feel worse because he's not able to participate in a standard or typical way. Right. Right. And to destigmatize that. Right. Um, and so if he needs to sit under the table, he needs to sit under the table. And that's OK. And again, it's baby steps. I think um, 
if the situation is too noisy, I, I recommend these headphones that kind of dampen the sound because mm-hmm. that's something I've dealt with in autism, right? The sensory sensitivity where they're just overwhelmed on a sensory level and I can't deal with it. Um, I also recommend choosing one child or one parent in the room that your child does feel comfortable with mm-hmm. and helping encourage them to interact with that person. So um, we call this in the quiet revolution with schools, we call this a bridge friend, uh-huh. uh, someone who is not overwhelming and someone who they feel more comfortable with and someone who they could have a little interaction with that then, and that friend is a more sort of confident, outgoing person, and then they can help introduce them to more people. Right. Um, it's not overwhelming, and, oh, like a room full of 10 friends. It's just one, exactly, and then it feels like a little bit exactly, softer. Exactly. And I think um, the other thing to do, again, it's the practicing and the role-playing and the social stories in advance, right? Um, if you going through, reminding them, this is, there's going to be this number of kids, and sometimes it requires... Um, checking in with the parent who's giving the party in advance. You know, it's funny you say that because I had a a, a friend of my older daughter. um, She is incredibly introverted and and a brilliant artist. um, And she will come to a party and she will have a book. And sometimes she will be like, I'm yes. going to sit over here and read. Um, one time we had it, we went to a dinner and there was, it was like the, the cooking at the table type thing. And she's like, this is a little overwhelming. Like she knew she knew her limitations mm-hmm. and I yeah. knew her limitations. So we just said, why don't you come sit over here? You know, so, but telling the parent and you don't want to, you know, again, you don't want to be like micromanaging your child. Right. But letting the parent circle know this is how it's going to be. And this is the way she operates. Um, that, that was helpful for me, for the mom to tell me that so that I didn't try to get a participation. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And also, um, I as a parent, if I was having a party, I would be grateful if a parent reached out to me in advance and explained uh, who their child was to me so that I could interact with that child in the way that he or she felt most comfortable with. Yeah, supportive. And, yeah, and also it's destigmatizing the child in advance. And because I do think it's very hard as a parent when you see a very well-meaning parent and or a very enthusiastic child come bouncing up to your child and wanting to interact with them and then your child is kind of oh and then you worry oh no are their feelings hurt do they think that my child doesn't like them if you prepare them and say this is just the way he or she is initially with people and he or she may be especially um, overwhelmed you know in the louder parts of the party so if we go to the side of the room, it doesn't mean that he's not enjoying himself. It just means that he needs to step back for a moment and collect himself. I think that is so helpful for everyone, right? I think it takes the pressure off of everybody to do it that way. Agreed. I was reading somewhere about the parent-child fit. And honestly, I've never really dove deep into this or thought about it. But as you mentioned before, like you want to have kids, you have a you have a kid, you have a baby, and you're like, they're going to do this, and they're going to do, th- we're going to do this together, and all this stuff, and then they grow up into their own individuals and have their own personalities and stuff, and it's completely different than you. Like I yeah. said, uh, we're extroverted. Maybe my kids aren't extroverted; they're more introverted, and they like small circles and more quieter stuff. How can how can we support our kids to be, you know, who they are, not who we wish? them to be this is like a common topic priscilla because we talk about sports and everything else you know you got the dads that are yes. at the soccer field like trying to relive exactly. their youth or something but like from the from the basic very basic personality and living your life way how can we support 
when they're totally different than you? Oh, I love this question. I mean, this is what my book is all about, because I I was a romantic poetry specialist, and um, I am a very outgoing, exuberant, creative, I'm a hugger, and I had this little baby who was very aloof and didn't like to be touched or hugged and didn't like to play with toys. Um, didn't like to do the things that I had done as a child and the things that I was looking forward to doing with my child. And th- that's why the anti-romantic child, right? He was the opposite of all these romantic expectations that I had for being a parent. And he was the opposite of who I had been as a little girl. And I was lucky, I think. I was fortunate because it's something that all parents must eventually contend with, is this fundamental difference between you and your child. And I had to contend with it because I had it in an extreme form. Right. Right. And I think that that experience that I had of learning to find unexpected joy in precisely the differences between me and my child, right? Because there were these very obvious and very stark differences, I had to, at a very early point, learn to take him on his own terms and to value those differences between us as an avenue of growth for me in learning to accept difference of all kinds, right, in all different people, it, like radically transforms me. Um, and I think prepared me to be a passionate member of this quiet revolution, right, where I am the most extroverted person imaginable. And much of what I do in my work is going out into the world and helping parents and schools and kids feel more comfortable with people who are different, right, right, right. from the way they are. I, I think it's just, a, it, it, I think it's a, it's also just a beautiful lesson in how we all need to grow in a society, right, to become more inclusive and to not judge situations and experiences based on how we would handle them, right? But really open yourself up to hear the other person's voice, the other person's perspective, the way that the other person handles things and needs to be treated, right? Right. And it's sort of the opposite of the golden rule. You don't treat people the way you would want to be treated. You learn to treat (laughs) people as they need to be treated. That's right. (laughs) Priscilla, I have a question, and I don't know if if it's even answerable, but I I mentioned earlier that my daughter was slow to warm, um, that she was incredibly, uh, had social anxiety, um, and now she is the social butterfly. So I wonder is it possible to change? Are, are there coping mechanisms? Because one of the pieces I, I read about was that this is science, that introverts are stimulated more than extroverts. And so therefore, when they're around stuff, they, you know, they burn out fat quicker. Yeah. So is it possible for an introvert to change? Or is it just that maybe they learn how to fake it? I think it's somewhere in the middle of that. Okay. Um, and, you know, that's my experience also with my son who is autistic, who, right, has a lot, a lot of the problematic aspects of his autism. He's outgrown. Um, it, autism comes with a lot of strengths, and he's learned to really go with those strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I would say that we, we, we don't fundamentally change. I mean, our temperament and our personality style are pretty sad. And I think that um, when parents try to fix or cure um, the kid, that's, that leads to all sorts of problems, right? Where you're like, okay, you're going to outgrow this. Um, and it, it's going to be left behind and you're going to become a different person. I always looked at it with both of my children as like, I don't want them to fundamentally change. They don't need to be fixed or cured, but I want them to grow into the person that they really are, that they essentially are so that they feel comfortable. Um, part of that is learning how to advocate for yourself and saying, 
you know what, I've reached my limit at right. this point. Or um, I'm actually not going to put myself in this situation because it's going to be too stressful for me. That was something that I needed to help them learn. Oh, no, but if I don't do this, then I'm not being a good friend. Or if I don't do this, then I'm not like everybody else. I'm like, no, so everybody has different situations that make them feel comfortable or not. And sometimes it's about saying no to a certain thing because it just doesn't work for you. And so, so much of I the... Think, oh, Priscilla, I was going to say, so much of it is learning who your kid is. I mean, as yeah. opposed to just assuming or projecting. Yeah. Absolutely. And I do think that they change. I mean, they change immensely. Like, that's something that I also, you know, always... I, I've experienced myself. I mean, we never thought that my son would be able to go to a mainstream college, and he's now... He goes to Vassar. That's cool. Um, you know, every every semester, every year, I think you need to kind of reassess, reevaluate, look at where your child is right now, right? I think it's very damaging and destructive when children get labeled and stigmatized in ways that prevent others from seeing that growth and development and blooming are very, very possible. Right. Right. Um, but I still, I, I do believe that certain things like people say to me, oh, your son is no longer autistic. I'm like, he, he's absolutely autistic. He will always be autistic. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing. And um, your daughter, who's a social butterfly, uh, wonderful that she's found a group of friends that she feels comfortable with and that she's learned t- strategies, mm-hmm. right? Coping mechanisms and strategies. Um, but I, I don't believe that those coping mechanisms and strategies are faking it because we wouldn't want anyone to be faking it, right? right. Because then you would feel inauthentic in some way. I think you fake it till you make it, right? right? Maybe initially you don't feel comfortable and that's something I did with both my children, like helping them learn to have, um, my older son learn to have conversations. Initially, he didn't really understand why he had to say, how are you, Mm -hmm. right, and ask those questions. Now, it's like, it's become innate, and it's become something that he's emotionally invested in, rather than just a script. It's rehearsing. You're rehearsing constantly during life. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Thank and you. some people are more improvisational, right? And some people need more rehearsing, and that's okay. And that's way. okay. This is this has been a awesome top. I loved the book, the um, Quiet Power. Um, we will link all all of the Quiet Revolution links and Susan's books and your book um, on our podcast. Um, t- if people want more information, but it literally. The Quiet Revolution is really trying to celebrate introverts and the things that they can contribute to society. And, you know, you don't have to be like the big loud mouth all the time um, that there's a lot of quiet people that have come up with some great ideas and gone on to do ginormous things. So, a ton of them, yeah. So, um, and, you know, look at, what did you say, 25%, 20 to 40% have are introverts? Right. So, thank you so much, Priscilla Gilman, author of The Anti-Romantic Child and a contributor to um, The Quiet Revolution. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to be with you guys. Thanks, Priscilla. So, apparently... All the introverts out there and your families, you're all in good company. Mm -hmm. And I read this somewhere and think it's pretty spot on that we need to see introversion as a strength to be harnessed rather than an affliction to be cured. And I think you've read the book. I think we should all read the book because it's so good. And it's so ingrained in us to do that participation and, you know, bright, shiny faces. And, you know, there's so much more. And I, so I'm going to read the book. Would you have it? Can I yeah, I brought, it? I brought okay. it. I brought it in. It's it's really fantastic. So we'll um, include all the links to the Quiet Revolution and all the books that we spoke about during the podcast. So 
For all the people you love in your family who are not loud, outgoing, or jabber boxes, we hope this episode brings you some insight and some perspective, um, maybe makes you pause and think think about your family a little bit differently. Whether you're an introverted parent who's trying to navigate a big, loud PTA event, mm-hmm. or your middle school kid who likes to quietly work on projects by themselves, mm-hmm. um, or retreat to their room at the end of the day just to recharge their batteries, this episode was for you. Yep. Um, all right. So we did spend the last 40 minutes talking about being quiet and introverted, but we'd love for you to be really loud and extroverted <laughs> and tell all your friends about our little podcast. Yeah, share our podcast with your friends, neighbors, sisters, brothers, and rate us on iTunes. Um, we'd love for you to leave us a review um, because while it might seem kind of silly that and insignificant, we really like to hear from you and your opinions matter. Um, we can sit here and tell everyone to go listen to our show, but when other people say it, it it carries a lot of weight. Yeah, and we want to hear what you want to hear about, too. So even if you're not commenting about how much you love us, um, you could just tell us what you need to hear, you know, and, yeah. and we'll find the experts. That's what we do. Exactly. So check us out on Facebook, Instagram. You can give us a call at 331-704-0046. Or email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Plus podcast. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy.